everybody. My name is Christian Cison, and I'm with my partner Declan Gorley here today. Uh, we welcome uh, the West Coast people uh, who weren't available for the 12 o'clock uh, webinar. So this is the second iteration at 3 p.m. We had a lot of great questions during that webinar, so we're going to try and incorporate some of those concepts into uh, this session uh, to make sure that everybody uh, gets the same information. Uh, if anybody has ever uh, asked a question or even been on a one of our webinars, this slide is very, very familiar. Uh, in fact, if you have questions now about the appeal process, which is what we're going to talk about today, uh, just put the questions in now. And uh, if uh, we answer it during the course of the webinar, uh, we can always skip it uh, or come back to it if there are follow-ups to that uh, specific subtopic. Why don't we give them a chance just to tell them if, on our website if you want to join our webinar series. Typically, it's on Monday. We were delayed today because of President's Day yesterday. That's right. Uh, on our website, you go to the uh, the webinar series and you can sign up for if you're here I'm assuming you got you found your way to the website you wouldn't be allowed if uh, <laughs> you didn't go to the website to sign up but uh, yes every third or I think it's third or fourth Monday uh, of every month is the New York webinar series the following week after is the New Jersey series uh, so we welcome everybody who's uh, up for some education it's great uh, today we're gonna go into a little bit of the specifics of any appeal making appeal decision, right? And when what uh, what goes into making that choice, right? So uh, one of the things that we're going to talk about is whether filing an appeal at a certain level creates a stay. So Declan, what 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 is a stay in legal parlance? Basically, allow allows us not to take the action that's directed in the decision. So the most common is uh, notice of decision or judge's direction for us to pay indemnity awards. Uh, we decide to appeal that decision. And while that appeal is pending, we don't pay the claimant the indemnity awards that we don't believe they're entitled to. Right. That's probably the most common example, uh, you know, a degree of disability or unrelated wage loss, uh, uh, you know, schedule loss of use. You're not going to pay the award if you're appealing it. Also applies to medical bills. If you uh, appeal any CA.1 uh, Part B disputes, uh, then you would also get a stay on, on those types of decisions. Uh, the second thing we'll talk about are tactical reasons for appealing the law judge or uh, a board panel decision, right? Uh, what is going to go into the process behind it? Is there a leverage opportunity? Uh, is Are there other aspects of the case that impact whether we make the decision to appeal? Things like that. And the third thing is cost, obviously. I mean, that's a big part of defense, uh, whether we're going into an appeal situation and determining whether uh, that impacts the overall exposure of a claim, right? If we can settle it for reasonably less than uh, what we're looking at to save on the cost of appeal, then it may all make right. sense. Okay, so this little uh, chart kind of provides background uh, just so you can get an idea of how it looks, right? Um, on the left, you have the Supreme Court. Uh, we don't typically deal uh, with those venues because we're on, on the other side with a board panel decision. Uh, we're on the administrative side. But the appeal from both of those courts goes to the appellate division. Uh, and the chart kind of uh, puts you in that right frame of reference where the appellate division not only deals with workers' compensation appeals, but also appeals from Supreme Court. And then above that is the Court of Appeals, which we'll also get into. So the path of an appeal uh, really starts with the board panel level, right? Uh, you can see here on the screen that after that, you would go to the full board and or the appellate division. We'll talk about whether one would do both or one. And then after that, a more rare case 
with the Court of Appeals, right? And you know, we have the time and cost there because obviously uh, our clients always want to know how long it takes to receive a decision and how much it's going to cost them, right? And the one guiding principle is, is the further into the process you go, the more costly it gets and the more time it takes. That makes sense, right? Okay, so on the first level, we have the board panel uh, that's going to hear our case, right? Uh, why, why do we have any final decision in, with final in quotes there, Declan? Why do, why do you think we're going to uh, tell our clients to differentiate final between something else? Because if a decision is not final in, in the legal system, we cannot appeal. It's an interlocutory appeal. And I explain this basically with the most common way we see this is pre-hearing conference and a denied claim where a judge finds PFME. Our client does not believe that the, it was sufficient PFME evidence. We can't file an appeal following that initial pre-hearing conference. We can note our exception to preserve our right to file an appeal, but the actual issue of compensability is not appealed until there's a final decision, meaning we go to the next hearing and there's a future uh, decision made by the judge that the case is compensable. And at that point, there's now a final, final decision, finality to this issue, and we can appeal that. That makes sense. Uh, you know, essentially, it actually gets more appeals, more unnecessary appeals out of the system. It waits for the final determination of compensability because that's really the, the crux of our defense in that example you, you mentioned, right? We're appealing the compensability with the subtopic, sub, subtopic being the PFME decision before that. Uh, so we're not going to essentially appeal the PFME decision, but just talk about it in our compensability appeal. The RB89 is what we would use to file the appeal. It's the board prescribed form. Now there's been a lot of uh, heat around this form in the last year or so. Um, Declan, any, any kind of insight that you can bring to uh, you know, what, what we're doing in response to these RB89 decisions. So for anyone that's not familiar with the RB89 form, it's basically the cover letter that the board requires us to fill out or any party filing an appeal to fill out and along with their actual brief, presuming they're filing a brief with the, with the, with the appeal. The RB89 um, has its two pages. Um, the first page is a series of questions, uh, basically what the issue being appealed is, where the party noted their exception on the record, whether there's new evidence, these types of things. And the board in the past year has been in our, my position is, I guess you feel the same way, arbitrarily deciding when they don't feel if the, the cover page has been completed properly. And sometimes it makes sense. I mean, if a, something's left blank, it might make sense that they, they're not going to review the appeal itself. But a lot of the times it feels like it's just a way for the board to avoid having to render a decision. And just what they've been doing for both parties, both claimants and uh, carriers, is issuing a decision saying that they're not reviewing the appeal because of this procedural defect. Yes, and it's a weird it's a weird kind of uh, progression because the RB89s have been filed by not only our firm, but not only other defense firms, but claimants firms as well. Uh, and to, I guess, get rid of all the, the appeals on their docket, they've just been denying them because box 15 was not completed in the way that they like it, even though the information for box 15 is actually in box 14, and it really doesn't matter to the merits of the case. Uh, it's it's a really interesting develop, and a lot of our clients are going to the appellate division for that, right? Yeah, because my favorite is whenever you uh, it says where when did you note your exception, and the go to was to say we note your exception at the end of the hearing when the judge made the finding, and the board has been to, has been kicking that back as not properly filled out because you didn't list the date of the actual hearing. Right, now, despite the fact that we ordered the minutes right. to be transcribed from the hearing. An exceptions noted, and you're going to have you, to read the hearing minutes anyway. And why would you have noted an exception at a prior hearing when the decision was made at the most recent hearing? It right. just doesn't make sense. So this was a, it seems like a way for the board to, like you said, clear the calendar 
and say that they're doing things faster when in reality they're just finding a way to eliminate a large amount of the appeals that have been filed. Which kind of affects the third bullet point of this uh, slide, the timelines, right? I, I would think that you know before this process started coming to play, like we would see board panel decisions come come back after nine months, twelve months, even longer than a year. But with uh, these new these new decisions to deny appeals from both sides based on you know whether or not you're dotting your i and crossing your t the correct way that the board wants it, then uh, the appeals are coming back a little faster, right? Yeah, I think the fastest now, especially with this way of denying it, is I've seen is less than a month. Um, and then obviously on cases where they've actually made a decision, not related to the RV89 issue, I've seen the average, I think, is still about three, three to six months. Right. I mean, I, it's, it's funny that you'd say even less than a month because uh, I guess to make a, a, a determination as to uh, the correct box that a party fills out, you probably don't even need a judge for that, right? So why even hear the merits of the case? Uh, it's, it's a very puzzling uh, development, but uh, certainly uh, we're going to talk about what we would do after that decision is made, right? And here's uh, the part where the full board or the third department of the appellate division comes into play, right? So obviously it's uh, it's a different form, uh, kind of similar to the first form. It's an RB 89.2. Uh, and the notice of appeal is something that we file with the third department. So what what is that? Uh, what role does the notice of appeal play uh, when we don't want to appeal from a board panel decision? So uh, whenever you get your board panel decision, you have two options. Essentially, you can either request or you can do both. You can request a full board review, which is keeping it within the workers' comp board, or you can take this to the third department. And if you take it to the third department, within 30 days of the actual board panel decision, you must file a notice of appeal, basically preserving your rights. You don't have to perfect your appeal. Uh, you have extended time to do that six months from the filing of your notice of appeal. But basically, within 30 days of the initial board panel decision, you have to file a notice with the appellate division that you are preserving your right to file an appeal. Right, and essentially, you know, we recommend that we that you do both, right? Because uh, the notice of appeal is, is, is not a uh, uh, prolonged or really right. extensive document that we're going to be serving on everybody. It's, it's pretty simple. Uh, and allow you to make the determination after it's filed whether you want to withdraw, right? Uh, that kind of goes along with the next bullet point here, cost and complexity, because going to the third department is not just attorney time, right? And that's not just paralegal time as well. Uh, there are filing fees, printing and binding costs that are associated with making a uh, an application to the third department. So, uh, you know, we want to file the notice of appeal to preserve your right and then if you haven't made that determination yet, if the cost is too high or the matter is not complex enough to go to the third department, then you can always withdraw the notice of appeal, right? So right. It's, it's fair to protect your interest by making sure the notice of appeal is filed. Now, the Court of Appeals is the next level, right? Uh, and you know, we, we talked about this in the, in the earlier webinar and has, as being just the rare case that you would take there. So why, why would it be a rare situation to go to the Court of Appeals? Uh, it's very rare for the, the Court of Appeals actually take the, whenever you file a, your application for them to consider your appeal, it's very rare for the board to, the Court of Appeals to actually take you up on that and review your case. Yeah, and it's, you know, the, as the costs continue to mount, right, uh, there may be other avenues to closing the file. There may be other issues that you would want to litigate before a law judge instead of tying it up in the civil system. Uh, and, and also, the timeline of the case might allow you to realize that, you know, okay, we've fought the good fight, let's uh, redirect our resources to this other avenue instead of going to the Court of Appeals. That's usually reserved 
for you know your rare stand on the mountain scream and yell because a, a wrong needs to be righted immediately and we have this little graphic here for you uh, essentially to demonstrate uh, you know the numbers and the figures that go into why we would make these decisions right and, and the most interesting number here Adam, for me is is the the win percentage for a board panel appeal, right? And this is based on the data we have in our own office, plus uh, you know monitoring of uh, board decisions as well. Uh, we pegged it at about 30% where the board panel will come back and, and give us some kind of a relief from our appeal. So Declan, like, what does that tell you in terms of how we make a decision knowing that board panel decisions come out in our favor 30% of the time? Well, it tells you that that's what people uh, Greg Lowe's always said, that's what feels are made for. So you come back from court and you're like, this is a, we've been wrong. The judge made this ridiculous decision. Um, if you're factually and, and legally correct, then it might be right to take it to the, the appeals to the full board, or sorry, to the board and then possibly to the full board to push the issue. And and I think to, so too, it's just if it's, if you're doing it for a leverage purposes, right? You talked about the ones where it's definitely the right uh, thing to do. Uh, if you know that you're appealing only for leverage purposes, right, because you get that stay that we talked about earlier, keeping in mind that you're going to win 30% of the time, on average, it allows you to push that leverage opportunity this, you know, sooner rather than later, right? If you're going to get a stay on suspending medical benefits, uh, suspending indemnity benefits, then you're going to want to push a settlement. You want to raise other issues that would allow you to decrease potential exposure. Now, instead of sitting back uh, and waiting for a board panel decision. And we technically uh, you know, don't necessarily have to do anything once the appeal is filed because it's now joined to a higher level. But if there are opportunities to settle the case, that's certainly something to keep in mind knowing that you're going to win 30% of the time. I think the important thing to point out on this slide um, between the, the board panel decision and any future appeals is that this is the only time you have an actual stay. So that right. stay that we discussed at the very beginning where uh, the claimants an award of benefits at the marks rate. And we are arguing that it should be only at the moderate rate and we're paying at the moderate rate. Or even better, we're arguing that it should be suspended for entirely and we're not paying any indemnity benefits. The only time we get the benefit of a stay on that is at the initial appeal level. So once the board panel has rendered a decision, if we appeal it further to the full board or the appellate division or the court of appeals, at that point, we no longer have the ability to stay benefits. We have to pay those benefits. Right. That's a good point because, you know, you want to keep that in mind when you go to the full board and the appellate division, right? Because now your your costs, your chances of winning are even less. And you are really doing it because the ex relative exposure that you're facing and the cost that you're facing from going there is still... This still make it. It still makes it relevant for you to do that, right? Because after a board panel decision, like you said, you're going to pay out the award. You're going to pay out the medical benefits, and then still decide if it's worth it to go out and uh, appeal further. So keeping that in mind, um, we have yes uh, under the concurrent column because we generally like to do both at the same time. Uh, you don't want to lose your right to do one uh, just by. Uh, do, uh, going to the other side, right? If you want to do a full board review, you should do a notice of appeal to the appellate division, at least preserve your interest. We talked about that. You can always make the decision to withdraw after the initial filings are made. I think we can point out the distinction between a, a mandatory and a discretionary full board review as well. So sure. with a full, once you have a board panel decision, there's three judges that will rule in the case. If all three judges concur, uh, if you want to take it to the full board, it's a discretionary appeal, meaning you request it. The board has the option of either entertaining your appeal or denying it. Uh, if there's a, if all three judges concur at the board panel level, 
uh, majority of the time, it's rubber stamp. They deny your request. Right. However, if one of the three judges uh, on the in the board panel decision dissented, meaning they didn't agree with the other two judges, and we request a full board review, it's now mandatory. It's not discretionary. So they have to review it. The full board must sit and review the case. That's an important thing to bring up because you know that the aggrieved party who loses the board panel decision where there is a dissenting judge is going to appeal, right? Because it's, as a matter of course, if we know the full board has the opportunity to reconsider it as a matter of course, then you're go that that's going uh, further down the, it's going to move further the timeline. Uh, so the full board decision may come before you actually perfect the appellate division appeal. Uh, however, you'd still want to file the notice to preserve your rights. But that's a good distinction to know that whenever there's a mandatory full board decision, you're going to want to make that application first before perfecting the notice of appeal. The last thing on the slide that uh, we wanted to discuss was, you know, the win percentage for court of appeals cases. And it's pur purposefully left blank. One, because there's not enough data uh, for workers' compensation going compensation cases going to the court of appeals, but also, you know, it's it's a good signifier that th this is the type of case that you should be making sure you are perfectly in opposition to uh, the Workers' Compensation Board and the Third Department because it is very, very, very unlikely that you will succeed before the Court of Appeals. It's got to be that one stand on the mountain case that I talked about earlier. Uh, so if anybody has any questions, uh, you know, feel free to use this uh, to ask them now. We're going to go through them and see if anybody has. While you're reviewing that for any questions, I'll just note that we mentioned the cost of $5,000, just so you're clear what that is. Uh, that's basically an approximate guess of what it costs our, our, our vendor to basically staple and bind or bind the actual, because the, the, the appellate division and the Court of Appeals have very strict procedural requirements for filing your uh, briefs on the board and serving, I believe at this time, nine parties have to be served on it? Absolutely. That's a good distinction copies. because it's not just attorney time or paralegal time. Uh, there are fees associated with going there. So it's, a, it's an important cost question to discuss uh, instead of projecting a budget as you would a full board or board panel appeal. Okay. So we do have some questions. Uh, and Kim likes to just say, no question, just great to see you both providing this and <laughs> great information. Thanks for your time and educational effort. Uh, that's always nice to hear, right? Uh, we can answer that question with a you're welcome, right? Uh, but uh, some other questions that we received from the 12 p.m. webinar had to do with tactical reasons to uh, appeal or not appeal based on whether the case involves schedule loss of use. And I think the question was was very, very good because it, it really didn't talk about the merits of the appeal, right? It talked about uh, what is the best interest of the file where you have a, a question of labor market attachment, but you're also trying to figure out if that benefits the file in the long run because you know it's going to resolve on schedule loss of use. So uh, do, you, do you have any insight into whether or not that case would typically be recommended for appeal? based on what the, the person had asked? I think it's that's going to become very factual. Um, and I don't think the, the question this morning as it was posed, I don't know if we had enough facts to give a true answer. Um, but I think the important thing to take away is that with a schedule loss of use award, ultimately, you're presuming the claimant's going to be entitled to a schedule, uh, indemnity awards and anything that's paid out previously, we're going to have to take credit for. So it's important to know if there's any reason why, if we think there's no entitlement to benefits at any point, then obviously we file the appeal. 
show ultimately if we know that they're going to be we're going to be able to take credit for a future permanency award in the future it may not may not make sense to file that appeal right it's almost a question of paying the award now and saving uh, later when you get the credit for the schedule loss of use award or saving now by litigating attachment and then eventually paying the schedule loss, use, loss of use award later. And a lot of it really is, like you said, uh, determinative based on a case by case uh, investigation. But sometimes you also have to worry about whether or not the rate's going to increase, right? Just because a notice of decision awards a rate at a tentative 75% uh, distinction, like, a, you know, I'm not sure if that was the example, but that doesn't stop the claimant from pursuing a surgery and then bumping the rate up the total. So if you have an opportunity to suspend and settle, then it's still a question of, you know, cost, not necessarily whether it's now or later. Some right. cases are like that, but some are not. Uh, did anybody have any other questions? No. Uh, I guess we did a good enough job in both webinars today. Uh, we want to thank everybody for uh, appearing. Um, it's been uh, a quite busy day coming back from a three-day break. So uh, hopefully this was a nice little uh, relaxing time for you to learn a little bit about appeals. Uh, if you have further questions, you can certainly contact me or Declan. Uh, and also, if you have any further interest in appeals, uh, my third Friday's podcast that was released last week is a more 201 level discussion of the recent RB89 issue and what we're doing with the third department to really get uh, our clients the relief that they're seeking. So, uh, Declan, I think I think it was good, right? Yeah. Uh, everybody, enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. And if you have any questions, please feel free to contact us.